Well, we are we're on a series, the last week of the series on the church, and um, we've been looking at the book of Revelation. Forgive me if you've been here every week and you're very familiar now with the book of Revelation, but I want to every week just give a quick background as to the book so you understand what it's about. It's probably one of the most, for those people that aren't churchy people, it's probably one of the most interesting books in the sense that it gets, kind of people are, people are captivated by it. It's dramatic, in places it's terrifying, uh, it's very mysterious, very symbolic. It's what the Bible, it's what we, the theologians call apocalyptic literature, which is full of symbolism. And it kind of speaks of, you know, what is to come. Um, now, the Apostle John wrote it. He was one of the 12 original disciples. He wrote it when he was old, probably about 70 years old in the year, approximately AD 90. At this stage, he's, he's uh, the only one of the original 12 left. Obviously, Judas killed himself after betraying Jesus. Um, and then the other 10 were all killed. They were all martyred for their faith. Peter crucified upside down, James beheaded, and various other ways they all went. Ugly ways of dying, but to the glory of God. Now, history says they tried to kill John by putting him in a vat of boiling oil, but it didn't work, and he, he survived. So they sent him to the Isle of Patmos, which is really like a, what, a kind of ancient sort of gulag, like a, it's where they sent uh, political, religious prisoners, the Romans, uh, to work hard. So John is here around 70 years old, really uh, on a chain gang or something similar in those days, working on the Isle of Patmos on, on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday. He finds them some time to pray as he does so. He suddenly has this extraordinary panoramic vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly the heavenly realm is laid open before him. And uh, the drudgery of the Isle of Patmos disappears. And suddenly he sees the spiritual realities of those things around him come to life in vivid technicolor. He sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he's shocked to the point of falling down like a dead man. Jesus, with eyes blazing fire, with feet glowing bronze, with a face like the sun shining in its strength, lays his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And he gives him this vision, this revelation. And the book of Revelation is what follows. And now it starts with, a, with, with, with seven addresses to seven congregations in the area of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Seven churches. And Jesus is really saying to John, I want you to give messages to these seven churches. I'm I'm part of the churches. I walk among the lampstands. I walk among the churches. I know what's going on. I want to commend six out of seven of them. And I want to correct five out of seven of them. So why are we looking at these letters, which is what we're doing as part of this series? The reason why is because the book of Revelation is full of numerology or numerical symbolism. And seven in this kind of literature, speaks of completion, perfection. And so although these were seven um, letters addressed to seven particular churches in that time, it's also a message for the complete church, for the universal church. And we've been learning much from these letters as a result. And then what follows is all kinds of stuff we're not going to go into, but we're just focusing during this series on these seven letters. And we're going to go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. It's not going to come up on the screen today. If you've got a Bible, then turn to Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, chapter 3, verse 14. If you haven't got a Bible, no problem. Just listen to me as I'll read from the Scriptures. And this is the letter to the church in Laodicea. It's a devastating letter. It's um, the only letter where there's nothing to commend in the church. There's nothing good to be said about the church. Uh, It's a devastating indictment of what's become of them. And here's what Jesus says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. 
You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realising you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne so I also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, in this letter, there's a lot of famous stuff. If you've been around Christianity a while, you would have heard about lukewarm Christians and being spat out of Jesus' mouth. It it comes up every now and then. Or you would have heard of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. It's all in this short letter. But what's it about? Well, we're going to find out. First of all, let's just look at the way Jesus introduces himself. The words of the Amen. Now, amen is a word of agreement. Someone prays, why do we say amen? What are we saying? We're saying, yes, Lord, I'm I'm agreeing, let it be done. That's what we say. That's what what the word means. It just means, amen, I'm in in agreement. Yes, let it be so. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is really here, introduced as the one who is the truth, the one who can be utterly relied on, the one who, when he says something, you can, you, can, you can lean your whole weight on it. The word for witness is the word, same word for martyr. That's what the word means. It's exactly the same Greek word. It's, if you read it, it's marturo. It means martyr. It's what we use, martyr. Why? Because Jesus and the disciples and others that followed him, their word about Christ would often take them to their death. They wouldn't back away. They wouldn't back down on this Jesus thing. And as a result, many of them lost their lives. Jesus here is saying, I am the faithful and true witness. All these other witnesses, the other disciples, they take their cue from me. Because obviously Jesus went to his death for his witness. He came to witness of the Father with his own life and his works. He came to witness of the kingdom. He is the one. He's the faithful and true. You can, if he says it, you can rely on it. In John 7, Jesus says, if anyone anyone really wants to know God's will, if anyone really wants to know, then they'll be able to tell whether the words I speak are from God or from myself. His words are self-authenticating. They're not comfortable. <laughs> they're really not comfortable very often. They're comforting. They give strength. But there's an, element, there's an edge to his words. That's why the Bible describes him in Revelation as having a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. What that's saying is this. There's an edge to his words. When he says things, they tend to pierce right in. They don't just come. Well, you can take it this way or that way. You can't really, if you want to have integrity. When he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He's saying something pretty straightforward. He's saying, you want, to know, you want direction? It's me. You want truth? It's me. You want life? It's me. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are not lots of different roads up the same mountain. There's one mountain and there's one road. I'm the road. Now you can only take that one way. And you can stumble over it, i.e. you can become offended because you think this is outrageous, and you stumble over it. Jesus used that word. Of, he said, blessed are those who don't stumble over me. You can stumble, you go, oh, don't like that, bang, and you stumbled. You need to get up the mountain. <laughs> or you can say, you know what? This is challenging to the way I currently think. This is challenging to the culture around me. 
This is challenging to current opinion, but it's true. It's true. He's the faithful and true witness. The beginning of God's creation. What's he talking about here? Because the Jehovah's Witness, they love this one. You get into a chat with them on the doorstep, they'll take you here. Why were they saying, well, look, if he's the beginning of God's creation, then he must, have been, he must be the first created in creation. That's what they say. They say, look, he's the beginning of God's cre- creation. He's part of God's creation. He's not saying that at all. The Greek word here for beginning is what, archi, what we use for archangel. It means chief, chief angel. Like Gabriel and Michael, they're the chief angels. They have preeminence. What is this saying? Jesus has preeminence in God's creation. He's the preeminent one. He rules over God's creation. Not only so, he rules over God's new creation. He's saying both those things. Because if you go to chapter 1, verse 5, it describes Jesus as the faithful witness, same again, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Here it's the firstborn, the firstborn from among the dead. Here it's the chief, the archie, the foremost in creation. He's the Lord of God's, this current creation, he's the Lord of God's new creation. Hallelujah. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. So this is why you see Jesus uh, kind of requires and demands absolute submission to him as Lord. That's not, that's not very culturally the way either, is it? Jesus doesn't say, you know what, let's, we can talk about this. I'm sure you've got something to bring to the table. We'll meet in the middle. You, yeah, you'll meet, yeah, come on, you've got some things to bring here. Let's talk about this. You bring a bit of your wisdom, I'll bring a bit of mine, we'll find a way through. doesn't do that. doesn't do that. Jesus says, I want to be your wisdom. He says things like this um, to his apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. If anyone pretends to be wise, if anyone wants to be wise, then become a fool so that you might become wise. The Bible says this, that man in his wisdom didn't come to know God. In all his cleverness and all his pursuits and knowledge and scientific advance, and he missed God. And so God was really glad through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. See, what this gospel does, what coming face to face with Jesus, the Lord does, it brings you down from your place of pride. Pride is one of our biggest problems. It's, I mean, man, alive. Over the years, I have discovered that I am so (laughs) horrifyingly proud. I find myself arguing for things that I'm not sure I even believe, but I want to win the argument. I find myself defending myself when people bring in criticism against me before I've even thought about, is it true? I just don't like being criticised. I find myself jumping in when people are talking before they even finish. Why? Because I think what I've got to say is more important. Come on, do your thing so I can... It's devastating. It's devastating. But it breaks into the spiritual realm and it keeps us from knowing God. Why? Well, who's this God to tell me how to live? Well, he's God. That's the point. He's God. And he knows better than you do. And the only way you're going to have a relationship with him is if you come down on your knees and say, you know what, I'm going to yield to you. It's the Lordship of Christ. Now, let's get into the heart of the, heart of the letter, just so we're clear on who's, who's bringing this word, because it's a pretty strong word. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you was either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Okay. <laughs> All right, so what's Jesus saying here? Number one, he's not saying that they're not hot enough for him. It's great to be hot and passionate about Jesus. But that's not what's being said here. You'll be told this. People will say, saying that, look, we mustn't be lukewarm in our affections. We've got to be hot for God. That's not what he's saying. That's not what's going on here. It doesn't make sense if that's what he's saying. Because what Jesus is saying, 
you know what, I'd like you to be hot for me or really cold for me. Does that make sense? It's up to you. Either one's good. You can really love me or really hate me. Just don't do the middle thing. I don't know. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure that Jesus does prefer coldness, in some senses, to people who pretend to love him and are I'm spiritually hypocritical. I'm sure there is an element in which at least they're up front. You know? But I don't think Jesus says, oh, I wish you was either cold or hot. It just doesn't make sense. What's going on here is what's going on here. Jesus is basically saying you're useless. Here's how. Laodicea was famous for its bad water. Laodicea was a city in between Hierapolis and Colossae. Now, Hierapolis was famous for its hot springs. Everyone loved the hot springs of Hierapolis. Why? You go and have a great bath. Okay? Like Iceland, you get those hot springs outside. Right, Hierapolis, hot springs. You have a lovely bath. Oh, she's great. Colossae was famous for its cold, refreshing water, so you could drink it, and it was lovely. That's what it was famous for. Laodicea was famous for bad water. It was lukewarm. You you didn't want to bathe in it. You didn't want to drink it. It was useless. Jesus is saying, I know your works. They're useless. You've become fundamentally useless in anything you want to do for me. That's what he's saying. That's what's going on here. The next section will tell us what the heart of the issue is. But that's the imagery. That's the illustration. He's saying, look... Cold water's great, you can drink it. Hot water's great, you can bathe in it. Tepid water, what can you do with that? Nothing. What am I meant to do with it? Someone gives you a glass of tepid water. What are you meant to do? You put it over your head or you drink it? You don't know, do you? You think, what is this for? Jesus is saying, I know your works. They're useless. So let's have a look at why. Verse 17. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realising that you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Here's the problem. They are self-satisfied and self-deceived. They're doing well financially. Laodicea was famous because it was for its economic prosperity. And these guys, they're living well. They got their food is full of their stomachs full of good food. They got they got some nice clothes on. Also, Laodicea was famous for its export of black wool. I'm showing some lovely black robes. You know, look at this, this is great. We're doing well. We have need of nothing. Jesus is looking on, saying, "This is this is devastating. This is I mean, this is this can't be happening." Now, notice this church is the mirror image of the church in Smyrna. Jesus says to them, "I know your poverty." Then in brackets, "Though you're rich." So now, why were the church in Smyrna poor? We've got to get to this, because otherwise you're going to end up thinking, I'm saying it's ungodly to be rich and godly to be poor. That's not the case. Here's the situation. The Smyrnans were poor because they refused to compromise with idols. Because in these days, every different trade had a trade guild which was associated with a god. And if you wanted to be involved as part of that trade guild, you had to worship that god, go to the feast, etc., etc. The Smyrnans said, we're not doing it. As a result, they lost their jobs, they struggled economically. That's why it was godly that they were poor, because it was, an, it was an, a, a, a symptom of the fact they wouldn't compromise. The Laodiceans, on the other hand, are rich, and they're seeing it as God's blessing. Well, God must be blessing us, because look, we're doing so well. Jesus is looking on and saying, you are poverty-stricken. Why? Because their rich prosperity came out of the fact they were willing to compromise. They were willing to, well, we'll just sidestep that issue of conscience there. You know, this issue around morality. Let's just forget that didn't happen. 
Let's just tuck in here and get in with these people, even though we know, you know, there's just a corrupting in, and we've got to kind of roll with that in order. But it's all, it's all good, because we, we can get ahead for God, and we can earn more money, and we can give more. Jesus is looking on and saying, no, I'd much rather you were poor. I'd much rather. They're self-satisfied, these Laodiceans. They're looking on, they're thinking, hey, we're in a good place. Jesus is looking on and saying, no, you're not. You're in a really bad place. And you're also deceived. In some churches, they actually teach that material blessing or material comfort is a sign of God's blessing. It may be. It may not be. It just isn't as simple as that. It may be. God promises, you know, in Malachi, give, give, and, you know, I'll open the floodgates of heaven, I'll bless you. Okay, so yeah, there's, there's, there is a place for that, absolutely. But, you know, that's what some are called to. Others, not so. Others are called, actually, to, to give away everything they have and go and maybe plant themselves somewhere where, where just, they just can't take anything with them and they've totally given away everything material in order to do that. It's, not, it's nuanced. You can't just say, well, this is godly and this isn't. It depends on God's calling. The only counsel to those that are rich in the Bible is this, don't put your hope in it. Just don't put your hope in it. You've got a responsibility to be generous and to overflow in it. Don't let your heart get caught up by it. But, you know, it's not just a case of, well, look, you're doing well, you've got a nice big car, you're being blessed. You might think, well, of course not. There are churches that teach it. I have come across programs. I've, I've got it at home somewhere. I've kept it. I was flabbergasted. Programs on the street. Flyers come to this conference. It had a picture of a tap with 50-pound notes coming out of it. Um, become exceedingly rich. Christian conference. You know, what Bible are you reading? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What Bible are you reading? It's crazy. So Jesus is looking on and saying, you've just lost the plot. And then he says, I counsel you to buy from me three things. Number one, Jesus sets out his stall. I've got some things I want you to buy. Number one, gold refined in the fire. So that you might be rich. Now firstly, he said, that, he said to them they're poor, then he said, I want you to buy from me. Why? That's a bit unfair, isn't it? You're poor. Now buy some stuff. That's out of order. Why is he saying that? Here's why he's saying that. He's saying, you know what, guys? You want to get into a good place, it's going to cost you. You want to follow? You want to know me close? It's going to cost you. Don't earn it, but it's going to cost you. So the first thing I'd love to sell you is gold refined in the fire. What's this? It's this. It's I've got some divine tests and trials for you. That's what it represents biblically. See it in one Peter one. It talks about our our faith, which is more precious than gold, uh, which perishes in the fire. Our, as we go through trials and tests, the the beauty of what God's done in our lives it comes through. Yeah. And, that, and how does it come through? Well, the dross and all the stuff. Because God's done. A, if you're born again, God has done a mighty work in your life. He's taken out your heart of stone. He's put a heart of flesh in you. He's recreated you in Christ. What he's done is pure, heavenly gold. But you know what's mixed in with a lot of corruption, isn't it? Mixed in with corrupt desires. It's mixed in with indwelling sin. It's mixed in with wrong ways of thinking. And, and that's like dross, which is joined in with the gold. And so God says, we're going to just put you through the fire because it brings up the dross, we can scrape it off, and you're looking purer than ever. Then you're going to go, oh, we're all going to rejoice together, then we're going to put you through the fire again. Jesus is saying to you, come and get some trials. I've got some trials for you. Come and buy them. Some of you are thinking, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Can Jesus really say that? Yes, only Jesus can say that. This is encouraging. Why? Because some of you think, if you're feeling scared at the moment, here's why. Jesus is saying, these trials, they are from me, they are my gift to you. They don't speak of me forsaking you. They speak of me owning you. 
They don't speak of me not caring about you. They speak of me caring so much for you that I want to get the dross out. They don't speak of you being alone in this, who's with me. They speak of me walking through this because I've been through this as well. It's Jesus' gift to you. I've got a trial for you. It's going to hurt. It's going to be pressure. You're going to feel it. Come and buy this from me. You won't force it on you. You won't force it on you. You can stay immature if you want. Just avoid anything that's hard. Just avoid anything that's hard. You'll stay immature. Jesus says, no, come and buy from me. I've got, I've got, I want you to make a choice where you say, you know what, more than anything else, Jesus, I want to know you're close. More than anything else, Jesus, I want what you've done in me to be purified. I don't want you to purify my heart. More than anything else, I want to be holy. I want to, I want to be able to actually make a tangible difference in this world. I want people to look at me and say that you are not, you're just like me, but you're not, you're not like me. What is it in you? Whereas the gold is much more visible now. The dross has been increasingly taken out and the gold is visible, it's tangible. People say, wow, this is amazing. So how's that going to happen? Jesus says, I've got some trials for you. And when they happen, you may find yourself feeling bewildered. You may find yourself feeling confused. You will come out of it pure. You'll be rich. And you may feel much poorer than you are now, but you'll be much richer. You may feel like, you know, when those trials happen, up, believe me, believe me, you know, I've prayed those prayers like you have. Purify my heart, Lord, you know. And then the trial comes and you're like, ouch, this really hurts. Really hurts. And you feel like, gosh, what's going on? And you feel terribly like, what is... And then, just at the right time, he brings you through it. And you go, wow. This is amazing. Purify my heart, Lord. Ouch. But after a while, you begin to realize, you know what? He's never let me down yet. And he always brings me through. And your trust in him grows. And it grows. And it grows. And you end up carrying a little bit of clout in the kingdom. Amen? That's what we want, isn't it? It's what you want as an individual if you're a believer. That's what you want as a church. Second thing, he says this. I want you to get something else from me. I've got some, um, I've got some white garments. Take, those, take that black wool off. <laughs> I've got some white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Jesus said, at the moment, you know what? You're, you're looking terribly naked. You need to clothe yourself with some, uh, with some white garments. What are the white garments? The Revelation 19 tells us good works, righteous deeds. What are you, they're going to cover you. Now this can sound a bit iffy, like a bit like, are we saying that what clothes me before God is my good deeds. Because I thought it was the righteousness of Christ that clothed me. I didn't think it was my good deeds. So what's, what's going on here? What is going on here? I'll tell you what's going on here. If you're a Christian, you're able to stand before God, not because you've done anything good, but because you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That is fundamental to Christian teaching. You are not saved by good works. But hear this, you are saved for good works. Okay? The reformers would say it like this. They put it like this. It's faith alone that justifies you, but the faith that justifies you is not alone. If it's genuine faith, it issues in good works. There's something about the new heart that God puts in where you know, you know what, something in you goes, I want to do good now. And you know that it doesn't actually affect your standing before God, but there's a drive forward. Which you see, I've got, the spirit in you desires and longs to serve God, to bless others, to serve others. It's a God thing. Last Sunday afternoon, I met a friend of mine who, her washing machine broke. And um, 
just a single mum, and you know, just difficult. I, just, I was thinking, oh, what, what are we gonna, how are we going to help? So the evening service last week, I said, guys, look, just feel burdened. Can we, as part of our offering, just raise some money for this? So he said, we'll take up our normal offering, but if you want to contribute to the washing machine, screw, screw a note up and stick it in. All screwed notes we will un, um, un, unravel, and we'll be able to bless her in that sense. So between us, we raised 200 quid, praise God. And so myself and Dave went down to the washing machine shop in a week, and so that's, that's a great one, friend, a really good make, took it back. The beauty of it was it was exactly the same as the current washing machine, but the next grade up, just by God's grace, fitted it, and, I, and, and so I saw it the other day, and he's, you know, the washing, it's, and you just think, well, I feel thrilled. Why? Well, because it's like, you know what? I was saved for that stuff. I was saved for that. Why? Because the Bible says that God has prepared good works in advance for you to do. Ephesians 2. He's prepared them. It's not like, oh, I've got to really show and prove myself before God. Now, no. God says, you know what? I've got stacks of good works prepared for you. Now, look, come on. Come and draw near to me so we can start to walk in them. It's what you're saved for. You're not saved by it, but you're saved for it. And as you do so, what it does is it basically highlights the fact, do you know what? You are really saved. There's something of a fruit. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. Let me read you one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible. It's good to do. I have to read them, so so should you. (laughs) Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who prays the prayer will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day when he returns, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Jesus doesn't say you didn't prophesy. He doesn't say you didn't cast out demons. He doesn't say you didn't do mighty works, because they most likely did. But he says, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. This is massive. I read this verse and I tremble. <laughs> and, I, and I say, God, God. And I, I, I unfold myself. I say, God, please, just may you never be able to say that about me. What do you want to know? <gasps> I don't say, what, you know, let's talk. <laughs> I don't want to hide anything. You know, I want you to, I want to, because it's like he knows all of us. He knows us inside out, but he wants to know us. You know that? It's different, isn't it? He wants us to say, Lord, know me. I, want any, I say, Father, what's the will, Father? What's your will? Because I know it's not everyone who goes, Lord, Lord, and Jesus and sings songs went into the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven, I say, Father, what's your will? Show me through the word, prompt me, stir me. Jesus is saying, come on, come and buy from me. White garments, I've got stuff for you to do. And it will not prove, you, it's not you proving yourself to me, it's the very work of God in your heart. That glorious work of being born again. It's the proving of that. That's what it is. And I've got one more thing for you. I've got some eye salve for you. Now, Laodicea was famous for its eye salve. It had an ophthalmology department with this great eye salve. And uh, Jesus says, you know what? You need some of this, but it's not the stuff from down there. It's stuff from heaven. Now, what's the eye salve of Jesus like? Well, 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 well. John 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples are analysing, theorising, criticising. Jesus says, no, come on, we're going to do some healing. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, said to him, 
go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. It's Jesus I saw. It might be a bit messy. I would say that in my experience, pastorally, Western Christians are the most controlling Christians I've ever come across. If they don't know what's happening in two years' time, they start to panic. If they don't feel like everything's, they get all freaked out. It's a false security. It's a false security. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You just don't. Let's not pretend that we do. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We are actually pretty blind. You want to see, right? Come to Jesus. And he might make some mud on the floor with his spit and stick it in your eyes and send you off somewhere. And you might think, this is a bit funny. <laughs> what did this poor guy think? I mean, what did he, he didn't see what was going on. He heard the noise. He's thinking, oh, what's this? <laughs> and then suddenly there's this kind of smelly stuff getting put on his eyes. Because spit doesn't smell too good. There's no toothpaste in those days. And you think, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? And this man says, go and have a wash. And he goes, thinking, well, yeah, I need to. Washes. And he's like, flip, what's this? You know, suddenly, the, 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 you know, the, the bright blue Jerusalem sky appears into his eyes. And you just think, this is amazing. You want to see? I tell you what, you need Jesus because you'll miss it. You will miss it if you're relying on your own perception of how things are. I miss it all the time with people. I miss it with people. I'm there as the wise pastor and I suddenly realise I haven't got a clue what to say. I don't really understand this person. I don't, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm sitting there listening, nodding, trying to do a wise face and inside I'm saying, Lord, I have no idea what, is, what needs to be said or done here at this point. And in his mercy, when I do that, he gives me the wisdom. I don't see it, though, I don't get it. I don't get people. Why, are they, why can't they all just be like me? <laughs> that would be terrible, wouldn't it? But you know that thing where you're, you're wired in a certain way and you assume other people are, and they come and they talk and you think, what? And it's just, a, don't worry, the chairs in here break. That's cool. Not for long. Three weeks to go. But... You think, I, I don't get stuff. You don't get stuff. You, know, you don't get God. You don't get God. You need thyself. Cry out. Go and buy it from him. It might be a bit messy, but get it from him. Then you will be able to see. And then we're just finished by the promise that he gives them. Because this is beautiful. Because they've had a hard time of it so far. If Jesus said this to you, how would you be feeling? He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He says, I love you. I love you. I really love you. It's a tough love. <laughs> it's a love that's marked by truth. It's not sentimental. It's not sentimental, the love of Christ. I've got to say that to you. It is not sentimental. This is like, it's, I love you. <gasps> so I've just said, I've said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because I love you. Why does that work? I've got, you've got to wake up. You've got to wake up. Be zealous and repent. I want to say this to you. Be zealous. Be zealous. At this point, don't say, I can't. 
Why would Jesus tell you to do something you couldn't do? How? How can I be zealous? There is one who lives inside of you who is a consuming fire. That's pretty zealous. Let him do his thing. Stop clogging up the well. Stop trying to manage him. Stop telling him what he can and cannot do. Let him do what he does. Let him be who he is in you, through you. Be zealous. Repent. Some of you might need to repent. What I'm saying today, you're thinking, this is me. I'm self-satisfied. I thought I got it all sorted. Repent. Change the way you think, please. Because it's a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac. It's futile. You will not bear fruit. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'm going to just apply this two ways quickly. Maybe you are here today. You've never opened the door to Jesus. You've never said, Jesus, come in and be the Lord of my life. Come and live inside of me by your spirit. I want to be born again. I want what these Christians have got. I want to know you. Well, Jesus says, all you've got to do is open up. I'll come in and we'll be friends. That's what eating meant in this culture. You didn't eat with people that you were out of sorts with. It's, it's friendship. It's like, come on, you know. So listen, if that's you, Jesus loves you with an everlasting, robust love that took him to the cross for you. Open up your heart to him. Let him in. But I want to speak to Christians as well and say this. Don't shut him out. Don't give him a guest room. <gasps> Don't leave him out in the porch. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. He deserves the best. Amen? He deserves the best. Trust him. It strikes me the only reason you would keep him out is that you're thinking, do you know what? I'm scared. How can you be scared of Jesus? If you're a believer, then you believe. Yeah? What do you believe? You believe that he is all that he has said he is. What is he? He's faithful. He's true. He's all wise. He's all knowing. Is this him? Is this who you believe in? Trust him. Trust him. I urge you. I plead with you. Trust him. Trust him. Do not do, not do what can be done, which is that you can divert away from what he is saying and try and do spiritual stuff instead. And it makes you feel like you're doing something. You know, it's like when God says to me, go and speak to that person. I say, oh, I'm going to have a prayer time now. Why? Well, because I don't really want to talk to that person. But if I have a prayer time, that's really spiritual. Yeah? And Jesus says, no, that, trust me. Yeah? We can be other things that don't even seem that spiritual. Jesus says, rest. You say, right, three-day fast. Why? Because you've actually got issues with resting. You don't know how to. You start to get freaked out after two or three hours of resting. You suddenly don't feel like you've, you've, you know, well, I haven't done anything. That's no good. The more spiritual thing to do in that situation is what? Rest. Well, I'm going to fast. That is very unspiritual at that point. Because Jesus is saying rest. Or go on a holiday. I don't need to. Christians of old didn't. I don't. I don't need. I'm not gonna. Jesus is saying, you need a break at the moment. Well, yeah, but, but. That's the most spiritual thing to do. Trust him. Trust what he's saying. Give. But it's a recession. I will buy a new Bible. <laughs> and some Christian books. What's he saying? Give. Do what he says. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. It's a simple thing. But I know, because I'm just like you, that it hits to the heart of our funny little ways 
and our funny little things that we think we know best. I know, I know, I know. But do what, do what I'm trying to learn to do as well, will you? Repent. And then what do you do tomorrow? Repent some more. And that's how we live. And then he promises this amazing thing. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the Lord saying to you? What is the Spirit saying to you? Well, please listen and respond. Why? Because Jesus wants to draw you into his authority more and more. He wants you to teach you how to reign with him in life, in your workplace. He wants to teach you how to reign with him so that you can affect that workplace with the kingdom. Okay? In your uni. He wants you to reign with him. Why? So that you can begin to, in a godly way, bring in the kingdom. Bring in something of the authority of Christ through service, through love, through praying for the sick, through speaking about Jesus. Yeah, he, he, There's an authority that he wants you increasingly to walk in. I want you to sit on my throne with me. How, how do I do that? Conquer. How do I conquer? Repent. Get low. Just repent. Walk in repentance. Obey my promptings. Trust me and you will begin to walk with me into more and more victory. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you so much. Again, Lord, we're always struck by your complete truthfulness. That you don't, you're not a respecter of persons. You don't, you don't fudge things with us. You don't leave us guessing. Well, what did you mean by that? But we know, we know really straight up what you mean. And it's because you love us that you're so truthful with us. I thank you for this candor that you have. I thank you that when we look in your eyes, Lord, we know that. We know that when you say something, we're not left thinking, well, what did they really mean? What did you really mean? We know what you mean. What love, Lord, what love that you would, you would treat us in this way. I want to pray for godly comfort to be given out in the hearts of your precious people in this room today, in Jesus' name. I want to pray for clarity of hearing, Lord, to be restored today. People will just get what it is you're saying to them and be able to walk in that. I want to pray for trust. You would help us to trust you. Help us, God. Help us in our pride. Help us in our fears. Help us in our anxieties. We would uproot those things increasingly, Lord, and walk in trust, walk in simple, childlike trust that we might bear fruit for you and bring your kingdom wherever we go. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.